This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The foundation of democracy is persuasion. All of it is based around this belief that you can persuade or try to persuade others. Trump doesn't care about that. Trump cares about power. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. I am Ezra Klein. This is a show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, one of America's greatest podcasting networks. But today on the show, I have uh, the head of one of America's other great podcasting networks, Crooked Media. So John Favreau is the former head speechwriter for President Obama. He is also the host or co-host of Pod Save America and one of the founders of Crooked Media, which has had a meteoric rise in the the podcasting and now the the digital publishing space. Very, very smart guy. I've known him for for a number of years. Um, And this was a lot of fun as a conversation app. We talk about the Republican Party and how his views on that have changed um, from coming in with a sort of optimistic view with President Obama to having a pretty grim view (laughs) at this point. We talk a lot about sort of what he sees as the rot in it and where it came from. And we also talk a lot about the Democratic Party, who's impressing him, what he thinks the trends in it are. This is something I think that people don't actually talk about enough. The the sort of dysfunction and craziness of the Republican Party uh, is very, very overwhelming. Uh, and so I don't think there's enough attention given to what are some pretty interesting trends in the Democratic Party. Also talk about crooked media, how it's risen, how they think about their role, how they think about what they've changed in the media and what they've sort of left behind from traditional ways of doing it. I found that part of the conversation as a media nerd uh, a lot of fun. So here, without further ado, is John Favreau. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ezra. I'm excited to have you here. So go back a year. Trump had won, but he hadn't yet taken office. Given what you expected right then, what what surprised you? I mean, there was a moment when he first won, sort of in the transition I think actually the first time he tweeted attacking the press, and I can't remember exactly what it was about, but I remember thinking to myself, like, this could go very bad very quickly, and he could turn out to be sort of the authoritarian that we all, you know, worried he would be. And I think that a year later, his personality certainly fits that of someone who would like to be an authoritarian. But I think our institutions have held up fairly well, um, with the glaring exception of the Republican Party. Um, But I think 
you know, Trump has not been able to do as much irreversible damage as I thought he might, at least so far. <laughs> this is all caveated because I've I've said many times this this could end up being the uh, best year of the Trump presidency, which is a dark thing to consider. But, you know, I think between the judiciary, between the bureaucracy, um, between the press, but and especially from citizens themselves, we have sort of limited the damage so far. Of course, much of that depends on if Democrats come into power again or if we eventually elect Trump out of office, like how fast we can reverse some of the bad things he's done. But, you know, I, I do think the institutions have held up fairly well. I, I go back and forth on this question of the institutions. And, and the main reason is that Congress seems to me to have been in the first year of Trump's presidency such a glaring, embarrassing failure. Mm-hmm. And, and it is so important. Right? More, Congress, so than, but more so than Congress was in the past. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm um, just thinking of I'm thinking of Republican control the eight years that we were there, you know. So But but that's what I mean here in the sense of Congress as an institution, not not Congress as a sort of governing body, if that makes sense. So Congress as an institutional right. actor within the American political system, as the sort of central generator of um legislation and direction of the main check on the presidency in a day-to-day way. I have been more disappointed than I expected to be at how much sort of cross-party allegiance has protected Trump and has kept Republicans from speaking out, from acting to exercise proper oversight, from demanding more competence, even from his appointees, right? Even in easy things, like you do not want an unqualified person running the Department of Education, like, but we have one anyway. Right. I think like when you go back to like how the system is supposed to work with ambition checking ambition and no political parties. One of my lessons out of this which you know I think we've seen before but has been really really striking now is that the emergence of very strong very polarized political parties that act across institutions has done more to break down accountability, oversight and checks in the system than I had thought. Yeah. See I wasn't as surprised as, uh, about how the Republican Party has behaved towards Trump because though I badly missed the ultimate prediction of who was going to win in the general election, I believe Trump would win the primary for I had believed Trump was going to win the primary for quite some time because having watched it, you know, from my perch at the White House during the Obama administration, I thought the Republican Party had rotted even worse than during the Bush years over the course of the eight years that Obama was in power. And you look, part of it is you have a lot of people in Congress, a lot of Republicans in Congress who just shouldn't be there. They're not qualified. They don't really care that much about any sort of actual conservative ideology or principles. And part of it is the other Republicans who are there uh, remain scared shitless of what's going to happen on Sean Hannity or what Steve Bannon's going to say about them. The party has a base that is constantly in a frenzy because of the right-wing media, because they have this media machine that keeps them going. And that's the real center of gravity in that party. It's not Republicans in Congress. It's not even really Donald Trump. Although I guess you could say that he's in some ways a creation of that media machine. So to me, 
the institutions breaking down because of that partisanship is wholly due to the fact that the Republican Party has been rotten to its core for some time now. Let's talk about the Republican Party is rot, as you put it. So yeah. this to me is an interesting evolution because when I think back to the Obama administration broadly, when I think back to 08, a lot of that initial campaign, which you were uh, the key speechwriter on, is based around an idea that the Republican Party, Republican voters, even the Republican base, is a better institution than you would think looking at politics. That if there's a more mm -hmm. reasonable Democrat, that if we can get to a place where we're really talking about issues, if the special interests aren't whipping everybody up, if cable news isn't driving everyone crazy, then there's going to be more space for a better, more elevated, more respectful, more civic form of politics. Right. And, you know, over time, you come to think, actually, the situation is much worse than even the people who had disagreed with you in 08 thought, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the thing is rotten to its core. What is the rot, and and what do you think was learned about it in the Obama years? Yeah, I mean, like, e even in 08, we saw, we saw the beginnings of this. I'll never forget the first time I witnessed or saw on television Sarah Palin rallies, <laughs> you know? That was the first time you thought to yourself, okay, well, we're going around out there and Obama's saying, you know, we're not as divided as our politics suggests. That was the line, meaning that, like you said, while the Republican Party in Washington is pretty damaged, there are a lot of Republican voters throughout the country are a lot more reasonable than you would think from watching cable. Certainly that wasn't the case when you turn on a Palin rally. But even then, we believed that that was a small segment of the country and that there's a good chunk of the Republican Party that isn't like that. And to this day, I think that's still debatable. There's about 30, 35% of the country who are hardcore Trump supporters. These are the people who probably consume Fox and Breitbart more than anyone else. I think that they are sadly probably beyond our reach to persuade. But that's still, you know, a small portion of the country. At least it's a, it's a minority of the country. And so the question is, what do you do about that section of the country that's from the 35% to the 50% that you would want, um, you know, the, the rest of the Republican Party or, or, or independents or Trump-Obama voters or whatever you, or non-voters, you know, or people who voted in the past and didn't vote in 2016? And, and what do you do about those people? And I do think those people are persuadable. I do think that, you know, um, under certain political and economic conditions, they'll vote Democrat. I do think that you could reason with them, that you could reach out to them. So I, I haven't stopped believing in that. But that's not, that's also not really reflected in our institutions right now because, you know, as we've seen in Congress, and especially with Republicans in Congress, they're more afraid of a primary challenge than losing a general. Um, and until that dynamic changes, um, I don't think you're going to see a lot of changes within the Republican Party. So I think it's fair to assume from this that you think that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are different on this score. You're not sort of part mm -hmm. of Washington both sidesism, right? I am not. Why do you think that is? If the Democratic Party has evolved to be a more responsible institution than the Republican Party, and I'm using both broadly, right? We can sort of think about affiliated media and interest groups and so on here. Why do you think that is? I mean, I hate to keep bringing it back to the media, but I do think there's a difference in the, the, the media consumption habits 
of Democrats and, and those of Republicans. I mean, there were studies about this. Harvard did a few studies about this after the 2016 race, that if you look at how Democrats consume media, you know, they're getting their news by and large from the New York Times and Washington Post and CNN and Vox and um, and the Wall Street Journal, by the way. And, you know, there's a there's a broader diversity of sources that are um, that the Democrats are getting their information from uh, that. And they are not just ideologically diverse, but they also adhere to a lot more journalistic standards for truth and facts than a lot of the right wing media sources do. And, you know, when you look at sort of the media sources that Republicans um, get their information from, by and large, it's not places like the Wall Street Journal, the National Review, the Weekly Standard, uh, places that maybe you and I would disagree with a lot of what we read there, but we would say, okay, this is a lot of it is maybe, you know, a good faith effort to make a conservative argument. Most Republican voters are getting their information from Fox and Breitbart, which are, you know, propaganda outlets. And so they are going to necessarily lead Republicans to sort of have a party that is a lot less responsible than um, than Democrats. Have you, I mean, so you now run a media organization uh, that mm-hmm. is a big favorite of liberals. You guys have had a, like a really, really incredible, amazing rise. What do you think about when you look at that landscape? Like, what do you think about, do you worry about becoming an echo chamber for liberals? Do you worry about having your standards slip? I mean, do you look at that and see pitfalls that change the way you act or what you build? Yeah, I do. Um, obviously, we've gotten the whole echo chamber thing um, from the very beginning. And to me, the difference is I sort of believe in like an honest partisanship. Like we are, we're not trying to say, you know, the, the Fox, you know, originated with the lie, which is, oh, we're a fair, fair, uh, fair and balanced network. And we're very honest that we are always going to be um, a group of liberals who worked in the Obama administration. You know, I'm not trying to like now become some commentator on television who pretends that I'm just like a bloodless analyst about politics and I can leave all my politics and personal opinions behind. Like, I'm a liberal. I worked for Barack Obama. I'm proud of it. But I do try to make sure that in all of our shows that we are, uh, A, arming people with facts and that we're not trying to spin and lie be that when we do get things wrong, which we do all the time, we make mistakes, we tell people and we correct it. And if we, you know, if I retweet someone on Twitter who it turns out that it was it was not true what they said and it was just some liberal fever dream, I try to take the tweet down or I try to correct it. Um, so I try to make sure that we are policing ourselves in a way that we are not feeding people misinformation or disinformation. And of course, that's not always possible because, as you know, when media companies grow, sometimes you make mistakes, but we try to correct it. We also try to talk to conservatives and Republicans every once in a while and have them be contributors. Now, we don't talk to Trump people a lot because I don't think they tell the truth. And I don't think it's very useful to have a bunch of people on a media program who are just going to like, you know, one person says the sky is blue and the other says the sky is purple. And that's that. I don't think that's very useful to people. But I do like to um, every once in a while get a, a conservative point of view. Who do you look to in the conservative media to understand the Trump administration? Uh, to understand the Trump administration. So on Twitter, you know how you can um, there's there's you can follow uh, Trump's Twitter feed. Yeah. So, 
So I do that. It's That's a pretty scary thing, sometimes. right? It's a very scary because thing. actually it makes a lot of what he says make sense. It does. Because he keeps doing that thing like people say that was the greatest speech anybody's ever given in Europe. And it's like, wait, which people? And they're like, oh, it's like random people on your Twitter feed. Yeah, no, sometimes it's important to see what like Don Jr. is tweeting and Donald Trump is reading and what Fox is saying. And like, I I try to pay attention, you know, not too much, but occasionally to what's going on on Fox News and what the headlines are on foxnews.com because it is a gauge, it used to be a gauge of what a big segment of the country is thinking. Now it's also a gauge of what the President of the United States is thinking and what might lead to his Twitter outbursts or, uh, you know, pretty significant foreign policy decisions, which is frightening. Yeah, I have been struggling with the question of how to make sure I understand why the Trump administration is doing what they're doing, like why they think they're doing it. And one of the weird things is, I mean, I reported on the Obama administration, as you know, we used to talk back then. And -hmm. I reported on the Bush administration before that. I've reported on Republicans in Congress for years. And in all that reporting, and I've always thought of myself as somebody pretty good at reporting among, you know, both like Republicans and Democrats, it had this quality of people trying to persuade you of what they were doing and like having Mm -hmm. arguments for it. And, you know, there's a whole sort of persuasion architecture. Reporting on the Trump administration really isn't like that. You talk to people there. First, a lot of them will not defend what's happening. A lot of the people in various positions will just not, just not, uh, are not on board. And they're there because they think somebody else will be worse or they're there because there's something they want to accomplish, even though they don't like all this other stuff. But it is a much less cohesive institution than any of them that I've ever covered before. And then a lot of people just don't know what the fuck is going on. Or even when they do know, Trump himself changes it the next day. So very, very high-level people end up being wrong about stuff all the time because Trump himself is so mercurial. Right. And it's a real challenge. I mean, I think there's some really good reporting on sort of like internal chaos and fracturing and on all of that in the in the Trump White House and the Times and the Post obviously do a great job of that. And, and it's important. But what's so weird is covering this institution that does not have reasoning for what it is doing in a kind of like steady, consistent, strategic way, an internally unified way, uh, at least at the level of of past ones I've covered. It's made it very hard to know when I feel like I'm being fair to what they think is going on because it's not always clear to me like that they do have a theory of what is going on. You know they have no theory. I mean, I think Maggie Haverman wrote this in her most recent piece, that long piece about Trump and how he thinks with, um, I think, Peter Baker and Glenn Thrush wrote it too. And, you know, in one line, she just said, you know, uh, a lot of people think there's some grand strategy they attribute to his various decisions and statements, but really, he's just an impulsive guy who sometimes when, you know, something he sees on television sets him off, he goes off, and other times he's in a better mood because he's not watching TV and when he's at Mar-a-Lago and talks to people he knows, um, he goes off because they whip him up. And when John Kelly's around him and tries to control him, sometimes he's not as crazy. I mean, it's just, it's all sort of a day-to-day just, you know, shit show there. It's interesting what you said about persuasion because you stop trying to persuade people when you feel like there are no consequences to failing to persuade them. And the reason that there are no consequences to not persuading people for the Trump White House is that they have this backstop of, 
you know, they think that no matter what they do, no matter what Trump says, no matter what he does, they have an entire infrastructure, this this propaganda machine that will support them. And so they don't need to worry about it. So that's part of it. And the other thing is they walked into that White House thinking everyone said that we were going to lose. No one believed us. No one gave us a chance. Everyone was wrong in their prediction that we would win. So now when people say that what Trump is doing is unpopular or it's crazy or it's going to hurt them with his voters, they're all just as wrong as they were during the election. And I think that mindset has caused them to say, fuck it, we don't really need to persuade people and we don't really care if we're getting bad press because they were all wrong before and they're wrong now. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So this is, I think, a really interesting question, and, and I have a different take on it, I think. So your old boss, President Obama, mm-hmm. he thought an argument. He communicated an argument. He was very susceptible to argument. I mean, yeah. he was a persuasive person um, and wanted yeah. himself to be persuaded, right? And so he had, like, as an individual, as a culture that he set from the very top of the the White House— that this was a place that was going to run on evidence-backed arguments. And like, that's how people were going to argue policies. And like, that's how the comms department is going to work. And, you know, I'm not saying that in every case, I think the White House is right. Often I didn't. Um, And I'm not saying in every case, like that the arguments were great. Sometimes they weren't. But there was a culture there of argumentation built around the guy at the center of it 
being a former constitutional law professor, being like this hyper-rational, hyper-logical individual. Right. And Trump himself does not think an argument. He's not a linear thinker. He's not susceptible to argument. He doesn't care if other people think the point he's made is bad or is untrue. He's not, um, does not feel ashamed if like respectable people in the media or respectable people in Congress attack him. Like not everybody is an argumentative thinker, right? A lot of people aren't. And he just really isn't. And one thing that I think has happened there is that because he isn't, one, it becomes impossible then to make arguments for what he's doing uh, just because he's so unpredictable. So I think people who once were trying to do that have stopped trying. Like I remember, for instance, there was this journal that started up right around the beginning of the Trump um, White House. I think it was called uh, American Affairs, maybe. Uh, but it was supposed to be a journal that was going to like put an intellectual superstructure on Trumpism. And eventually, they just abandoned <laughs> the project, right? The, the journal is still there, but they stopped trying to do that because they couldn't. And the, the founder of it has been pretty upfront about that. But also just within the White House, if the guy in charge doesn't care internally or externally, if the arguments make any sense, and if that's not how he's judging the things that come up to him or the way the people who work for him are acting. And instead he cares, you know, like, was that a really good burn or did that, you know, excite the right people? Like that's a cultural question. And it feels to me like this is a place where culture is really being set by the top. I completely agree with that. When you don't believe that persuasion is necessary or evidence-based argument is necessary, that's partly a reflection of Trump's anti-democratic tendencies in his personality, right? I think the basis, the foundation of democracy is persuasion. The reason this is supposed to work is that you try to persuade others in this polity that your argument is correct. And they say, no, my argument's correct. And then you try to compromise. And maybe sometimes, and then if you can't compromise, you vote. And the majority, you know, but all of it is based around this belief that you can persuade or try to persuade others. Trump doesn't care about that. Trump cares about power and he cares about winning. And in some ways, that is not just reflective of his own personality, but it's, it's reflective of his understanding of politics that comes from watching cable, reading the New York tabloids, et cetera, right? Like that's how that's how the political culture seems. It's all about, like you just said, you know, is was that a sick burn? Did someone win that fight, et cetera, et cetera. It's not full of evidence-based arguments and reasoning. That's, that's, that's not what you'd get from politics if you just happen to watch coverage or read coverage. I, I think that's right. The other piece of this that feels to me important, because this goes to this much deeper part you're bringing up, which is the political theory is based on persuasion. Mm. And I think something Trump has at least caused me to reevaluate is what are the mechanisms by which that works? So I don't know exactly what I would have told you four years ago if you had said to me, like, why does negative media coverage of a politician matter? I think I probably would have had some answer like, well, the public watches negative media coverage. And if people are saying that politician X is doing something badly, the public might not vote for politician X and politician X knows that and is afraid of that. And so this is an external set of consequences. And so the reason that persuasion matters in politics is if you fail at persuasion, you fail at something pretty profound um, and and you will be punished for it. 
Uh, and I think that a lot of people implicitly had a view that maybe was not exactly that one, but was similar to that one. Why did it matter in the Obama years when people were complaining about the deficit? Well, folks might hear about that. They might get upset. They might vote for Republicans, like on and on down the line. And I think that I have really changed my view on this. I think that Trump has begun to persuade me that a lot of how persuasion works in politics is actually operating off of an individual sense of shame. And that mm. there are not these external uh, consequences. It's pretty easy with polarized media and the amount that people want a motivated reason, you know, for their politicians and for their side and for their tribe. You really don't have to have the better of the argument. You just have to have something you're saying, right? I, I feel like that's like the great Kellyanne Conway under like recognition. You don't need a better argument. You just need something that your people can hear so that like they don't feel crazy going away, like thinking you're in the right. And a lot of this is operated off of individual politicians like feeling ashamed when people they respected said, hey, that's a lie, or that doesn't make sense, or that policy is terrible. Um, I think the Obama administration like cared a lot what people thought of it. It had all these people, both on the left, but also with people like Ross Douthat and David Brooks on the right, whose who's approval it wanted. And it had like shame. It had a feeling of concern if it didn't win that. And Trump is uniquely this truly shameless person. And I think in doing that, like in changing that variable, he's shown that there's not a lot of external consequences on a lot of this stuff. We were relying on people's personalities and their desire to be like seen as good, honest, smart, whatever. And if somebody just doesn't care about that, it turns out that the boundaries of what you can do in politics are much wider than anybody expected. Yeah, and that's a, um, and look, part of it is how technology has changed sort of the speed of the media cycle too. Because now um, you are punished if you do something that most of us would regard as shameful, but the punishment lasts, I don't know, five hours <laughs> in a news cycle, and then it moves on and everything resets, and it's the next fight. And Trump is very, he's very aware of that. Like when there are controversies and they are uh, controversies about him, he's very good at like, you know, he tries to fight people to a draw in the hour or so that it's happening, and he sends out a tweet or whatever. And then he sort of knows that the next day the topic's going to change and he can move on. And and you're right, he doesn't feel that shame. And I think that the question is, the scarier question, is is shamelessness something that's inherent to Donald Trump or are other Republicans and other politicians in general, even Democrats, going to look at that and say, okay, well, um, if he's shameless and he got away with all that, can I be the same way? What would have been different about this year if it had been President Marco Rubio? If it had been President Marco Rubio, I think, <laughs> I actually think he might have cobbled together a, in a repeal plan for the Affordable Care Act that might have been more successful. <laughs> Maybe it was maybe he would have been able to do partial repeal in a way that because I don't I think there was zero presidential leadership on that. And that that probably helped tank it. I think we probably still would have had a tax cut. Maybe the tax cut would have been slightly more progressive, as is evidenced by the fact that Rubio is, was trying to get the child care tax credit uh, doubled um, or increased. But I think what would have been different is a lot of the authoritarian moves that we've been worried about, the attacks on the free press, the conspiracy theories, the travel ban, I don't think would have gone into effect. Um, I don't think we would have seen the end of the uh, DACA. 
um, although maybe he would have ended it, but also worked with Congress to actually pass a DREAM Act. So I think that the legislative, um, the two big legislative uh, moves from Trump, which is repealing the Affordable Care Act and the tax cut might have succeeded. I don't know if anything would have been different there, but I think some of the some of the more authoritarian, anti-democratic uh, statements and actions from the Trump administration that have worn everyone out and uh, and frightened people, I don't think would have happened. What do you, do you think that? What do you think? I think that, and I go back and forth on this, I think that a president, Marco Rubio, would have been a more effective conservative legislative leader. Yeah. I think yeah. that they would have done more on health care. I think their tax cut plan would be more popular and make more sense. I also think that with the economy we're seeing now, with unemployment as low as it is, with the stock market as high as it is, you would not see a Republican, first-year Republican president at 34% approval. And no. I don't think you'd be seeing these massive backlash elections in Virginia and so on. I mean, I think you'd you would naturally expect a little bit of midterm recorrection, right? Usually the president's party loses seats in a midterm. So I don't want to say there'd be no effect. But I think that the antipathy towards Trump, the activation of sort of a counter movement, I don't think that would be happening in, in any way like that. And in fact, I could imagine Rubio being a pretty popular politician. Like this is a really, really good time to be president if you're going to pick a time to be president. And I actually think, I always, I joke that like the data journalism I want to see is Trump's economic adjusted approval numbers, right? Economy adjusted approval numbers. Like what would he be like if he were, you know, at 7% unemployment? Because like this is a pretty dismal showing given given where it actually is. The, the, The only difference if Rubio had been president or one big difference would be that Steve Bannon and the right would be on him, attacking him every single day since the day he was inaugurated. And so he would have this sort of growing frustration and backlash on the right. I don't know that Rubio would have been supported by sort of the Trump propaganda machine. Fox probably would have been split in how they saw him, but certainly the Breitbarts of the world would have gone after him a lot of these Republicans in Congress would be facing probably more significant threats from the right um, with primary challenges, more so than they are now. And so you would have had Democrats who I don't think would have uh, enjoyed a President Rubio. (laughs) And then you have the right, the base on the right would have probably been pretty angry with him too because he would have done something on immigration that seems somewhat sensible. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, that might have set them off. That's so I don't know. You're right. The economy is the countervailing force there, but I don't, it's hard to, the counterfactual is hard, but I don't know that everything would have gone swimmingly for Rubio. Oh, I'm, yeah, that's almost certainly true. I, I have trouble with the Breitbart question right now mm. and in the hypothetical too. Breitbart is not that big. Um, mm. It's a lot smaller, for instance, than Vox. Uh, right. Steve Bannon is a really good self-promoter. And obviously held a position of real power. But I I mean, as a thing that mainstreams like alt-right, that like literally launders an alt-right agenda into Fox News, like Breitbart seems to me like an important transmission mechanism. And I think there are like real studies on that. But this idea of Breitbart really driving the Republican Party, it it might now because it has become the pro-Trump outlet, like it has become this authentic voice of Trumpism. But I don't think it was before. I think it that, definitely wasn't before. And and so I do think that it has come to occupy this 
space in like the like the liberal understanding of the conservative ecosystem, which I'm just a little uncomfortable with. Like I don't think they had really the power to primary people before. I'm not even sure they have the power to effectively do it now. Bannon has lost a bunch of these fights too. And he's sort of is one of these guys who gloms onto something already happening. Like Roy Moore was already a insurgent Alabama politician often running against the Republican establishment um, who was going to run in the primary before like Steve Bannon went and like in this very, what I think seemed to Steve Bannon like a very smart move and ended up not being a very smart move. It's like, this guy's mine. Like I did this. Like I, yeah, I if you want to blame anybody for Roy Moore, blame me. Like that, that was, that turned out to be a bad idea, but it was also like never true. No, I, I think Steve Bannon is like you said, a self-promoter who is like gets way too much credit, way too much press, and who is not the fucking Svengali that everyone says he is because, um, you know, he jumped on the Trump campaign at the end and since then has had a pretty piss-poor record of uh, electing candidates. I think that the problem is, I've been having the same problem too, is that saying using the term Breitbart is a shorthand for a media ecosystem. And the reason I just don't say right-wing media is because I do think there is a difference between conservative media that promotes a coherent conservative ideology, uh, even though it's one I disagree with, and sort of the more propaganda outlets. And I think Breitbart is maybe the best known example. But I think what the right wing media or the Trump media benefits from is that they're all saying the same thing. No matter how many like shares or clicks Breitbart gets versus The Federalist or Infowars or, you know, Hannity or whatever they all may be, they're all pretty much, they, they run the same stories every day. I mean, just as an example, when the, the FBI story was happening over the last week, you know, there was like 10 of these right wing commentators showing up in my Twitter feed yelling about this insurance policy text, right, from the FBI agents. They all started covering it at the same time. It appeared in a Wall Street Journal editorial the next day because their editorial board is now just as bad as Fox. And they were all talking about it. And that that kind of thing rarely happens either in liberal media and certainly not in the mainstream media, that, that all the same talking points, the same messages are all being, you know, spoken at the same time. Let me move our conversation over the Democratic Party because I feel like we it's easy to get very focused on Republicans these days. Yeah. Who in the Democratic Party is impressing you? <laughs> it's a tough one, Ezra. Um, look, I think that a lot, I would go through some names of, okay, some names of people that I've spoken to that I've thought, because my test is always, as you know, like, does this person sound like a real human being? Do they not sound too like too much like they're on their talking points? So on that, you know, in the Senate, I would say, like talking to Chris Murphy, um, I've enjoyed talking to Kamala Harris. I think Elizabeth Warren is very sharp. You know, as up-and-comers, I would say Kander and Moulton. We talked to Stacey Abrams yesterday, who was fantastic. Um, I like Garcetti. So there's like a lot of people who have impressed me. There is no one yet who I think oh, this is the obvious leader for the party right now. And that's not to say, oh, none of those people I just mentioned could get there, but I just don't think anyone has stood out to me yet um, in the Democratic Party. And there's also probably a bunch of people I for- I'm forgetting who are like in that category of people that I just mentioned that aren't coming to mind right now. Do you think the party is as fractured as sort of 
Twitter wars would have everyone believe? I don't, unless that's me wanting to believe that it's not. <laughs> but I, you know, I try to step away from the Twitter wars, and I, I've, I've tried to argue about this on Twitter with people, and it never goes well because even at 280 characters, it's not really a place for nuance. I think that policy-wise, certainly the party is not as fractured as you would believe from these Twitter wars. I mean, when you're talking about an argument between a $12 minimum wage and a $15 minimum wage, and even now, most of the elected Democrats have gotten on board with the $15 minimum wage. When you're talking about, okay, how do we achieve single-payer? Do we start with the public option? Do we start with the you know Medicare for All program, or is it some transition between the two? I mean, I I don't think the policy differences are as wide as you would think they were from watching the fights go on. But I do I do worry about sort of these internal divisions and these and these battles because I worry that when they are not just about policy, but when they become about personality, then they harden in ways that's hard to un- that's difficult to undo. And I do, look, as I was just talking about persuasion on the right, one thing I worry about on the left is forgetting that we need to persuade others of our views, others within our party. I mean, I I do sometimes see a tendency on the left where people think, okay, I have this position, I am right, and if if you don't believe this position too, you are obviously stupid, and I don't have to spend the time to persuade you about why I'm right and try to bring you along with me in an argument that, you know, my position is the obvious position that everyone on the left believes. And if you're not there, then fuck you. And I see, I see some of that. And it's, it worries me because I do think even in this sort of media age where everything happens so quickly and it's Twitter and it's everything else, I do think we need to take the time to persuade other people of what we believe and I catch myself doing that all the time too, taking shortcuts on that. But I don't, I don't think we, I don't think we can if we hope to, um, if we hope to, you know, become unified on the left. One of the really interesting things about Obama in that 2004 to 2008 period mm-hmm. is he had this rhetorical style. And if you, I don't want to say if you go back to the the, the audacity of hope because you probably wrote a big chunk of that. But <laughs> if one goes back to the audacity of hope, the book, you, like you see it, like every section it has the same structure of like here's a topic mm-hmm. here's some good points republicans make about that topic yeah here's why obama like agrees with some of those points but ultimately comes down in a liberal position that you know creates some space for compromise i, I mean it's a lot about reaching out do you think that that political style would be a harder sell in today's democratic party I worry that it may be, but I don't think it should be. The best example of that for me is um, when he's giving the healthcare speech to Congress. And, you know, the first draft I gave him of that healthcare speech, um, this was, of course, in the fall of 09. Um, he, you know, it was all, it was a speech that was all about his plan and what the Affordable Care Act was going to do, or at least what the principles were, some of the details. A lot of stories, some motion at the end, yada, yada. And his big change to that draft was, no, no, no. I want to take on every single one of these Republican arguments about the bill that people are hearing out there. You know, uh, it gives free health care to uh, undocumented immigrants, the death panels, 
all that other stuff. I want to take each one of these Republican arguments on, and I want to explain why it's not true, because that's the only way we're going to fight the misinformation that's out there. Ignoring it is just is not enough. And just believing that we're right is not enough. And I might be biased because, you know, I was raised politically uh, in the Obama world, in the Obama administration, but I think I think that style of argument is still necessary. I worry about it on, uh, you asked me about, you know, how I think about our media company uh, and, you know, the space it occupies. It's fun sometimes to go on rants as we do on Pod Save America and yell about Paul Ryan and yell about this. And we'll probably still do that because it's fun. But I worry that if there are too many rants and we're not arming people with enough facts that we have misfired. And so I'm always trying to make sure that we're giving people enough facts and enough information and we're trying to argue the point as much as we possibly can because if we fall back into, obviously we're right and now let's just yell about it, I do think that's dangerous. But this is one of the things that is interesting to me about the sort of context in which Obama emerges. So you were on the Kerry campaign in 04 Mm -hmm. and I always think of that 04 loss for Democrats as the nearest thing to this era. People Mm -hmm. reach for a lot of really unusual historical analogies. You know, hear people talking about like Nazi Germany and all this stuff that is way, I think, outside of where we are. But 04 is this election where Democrats feel that Bush took the country to war on a lie, which he did. Um, Mm -hmm. They feel that the Iraq war is going really badly, which at that point it is. You know, there is such a belief that this can't possibly keep going on. Yeah, And when Bush wins, I mean, Democrats really take that as a trauma. Uh, there's all this discussion of how they're out of touch with the heartland and like they yep. nominated this French-speaking effete cosmopolitan who goes windsurfing and like has this billionaire heiress wife. And, you know, there is this real sense of cultural trauma. And so for a while, there is this idea that, you know, the Democratic Party needs like like real authentic Americans, right? And there's this like crazy Brian all Schweitzer, if you remember. John like, Edwards. Bolo ties. And yeah, John <laughs> Edwards. And I, I always think about that and how much like energy went into that fight, that sort of fight about like culturally how to connect and whether like Democrats had been rejected by the country. And then like four years later, Democrats win power with an African-American guy from Chicago whose middle name is Hussein, whose last name rhymes with Osama, who's like a genuine liberal. I was like truly anti-war, like not going towards a, like a military general. And there is this way in which everybody's always fighting the last political war. Yeah. But you really could have seen the Democratic Party turning towards like rage at that point, which is what Republicans did after Obama, right? They turned to Donald Trump and a little, and certainly to my surprise, it worked for them, at least on on some level. But I wonder a bit whether liberals will be able to resist like turning towards rage after this, right? They're so hurt. They're so traumatized by this. That 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 space to like, well, let's try something new with somebody who listens well, that, that actually like takes a breath. It's so funny that you mentioned that. I use that analogy all the time <laughs> that this period is most analogous to 04. And it's partly, you know, it might be because that was my political life. I, you know, I was on the Kerry campaign. We lost. I was 22 at the time. I, 23, I thought that was it for politics for me. I was unbelievably cynical. I couldn't believe it just happened. I couldn't imagine something worse than a second term of George Bush. I thought I was going to quit, go to law school. And I was broke, moved back in with my parents. And then, When Robert Gibbs reached out to me about Obama, 
I read Dreams from My Father, and I remembered his speech at the convention, and I thought to myself, okay, everything about all of the arguments in the party right now are about the fact that John Kerry lost because he was this effete liberal, you know, all the things you just said. And, you know, in, in a way, I had been on that campaign, and I saw how that happened, I had also done my college thesis on white working class defection from the Democratic Party. <laughs> so at that point, I was like, you know what? This was a mistake with the John Kerry thing. You're right. We should have someone like John Edwards next time. This is crazy. And then I read Obama's book and I thought to myself, you know, maybe the identity of the person is not the most important thing here, but it's their character and the fact that Obama was honest and authentic and didn't seem like he wanted to, you know, he was just going to spout talking points and that he was reading from a script, which, you know, as much, that's what Edwards sort of seemed like to me. Edwards always seemed like a little too slick. Of course, now we know, you know, he had all kinds of other problems. But at that point, I was like, what the party needs now is not someone from a certain region or who looks a different way, but, but someone who's sort of unafraid of politics all the time. You know, we need someone who's who's less cautious, who's more, who's who's bolder in how they talk, and who talks like a normal human being, and who's who's not afraid to say what they believe. And I think Obama fit that in a lot of ways. And I also think people are angry right now, but I think liberals like to be inspired. I still believe that. I do. I think that fear and anger work better for Republican voters than they do for Democratic voters. I think that. Um, I think that inspiration still works on the left. I think that's what people are still looking for, even if they don't like to admit it, because people are so cynical and it's almost like embarrassing to admit that you want to be inspired in this political environment. But I think that if someone comes along and does that, you'll see people react positively to it on our side. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. All right, I know we've got a time cap here, so I want to ask you a couple of questions about Crooked before mm -hmm. before I lose you. So, you started Crooked Media how many months ago? Uh, so it was January, so eleven months ago, it's almost a year. So yeah, it's it's done okay. I think it's it's done all right. <laughs> what what do you accounts for the success of Pod Save America and and the and the portfolio? Why do you think that you guys yeah. have had this rocket ship? I think. I'd be I'd be lying if I if I didn't say that part of it was due to the fact that Donald Trump is president and um, everyone has has freaked out uh, rightfully so and a lot of people who haven't paid attention much to politics before he was elected are looking for answers and explanations. But I'll also say that long before Trump was elected, John and Tommy and I and I've had these conversations with you before as well, looked at traditional media, and not just from a partisan viewpoint either, but looked at television news in particular, 
and thought that it was seriously lacking in being able to inform people about the world around them and also what they can do about that world and how they can change it. And I think sometimes, I think the news has gotten cynical, it's gotten silly. I think in Washington, people take themselves very seriously and they don't necessarily take the issues all that seriously and it can seem to people like a game. And sort of our critique of what the news is and what the political news has become uh, and I and really, it's a critique of political punditry and commentary less than it is of political journalism, which I think on the whole has done a lot better. But our critique of that, that predated Trump. And so with Crooked and with specifically with Pod Save America, we thought, okay, I think what we'd love to do is love to inform people. Uh, we would love to entertain people because I don't think that news should be a slog and I don't think we should take ourselves too seriously. But also, we should try to inspire action. We should let people know what they can do to change the world around them. And I think there was a hunger for that among a lot of people, especially a lot of young people, and especially a lot of people who hadn't paid much attention to politics before Trump became president. And I think that is what a lot of our listeners are responding to. One thing that's interesting in that is that that is a line that traditionally most media organizations are incredibly unwilling to cross. Um, We don't cross it. A lot of others don't cross it. That Now, people are more comfortable with the idea that you're not going to be, quote-unquote, objective, which I have a lot of problems with that concept. And you're going to say what you think or what you found, but the idea that then you would then go and say, and now go out and vote, and now go out and register Mm -hmm. people to vote, and now send your money here. Like, that that is a line people didn't cross. Have Mm -hmm. you guys gotten shit for crossing that line? Have you found it's put you in any difficult positions? Do you think it's just an outdated thing in the media that is a little bit ridiculous? Like that That is a place where you differ from a lot of things that feel yeah. like competitors to you. Yeah, I, you know, we get some shit for it, but we don't really care. It's just from the people in Washington. <laughs> I mean, I do think like... I remember when you were a person in Washington, John. <laughs> I was a person in Washington. And I complained about it just as much when I was there. <laughs> um, but I was part of a lot of the crap, too. So I'll, I'll admit that. I have a different perspective now that I'm outside of it. No, but look, I, I, I think that... I go back to... There was a, like a mini controversy a couple of weeks ago where the New York Times editorial board had many scathing editorials about the tax bill. And then their social media account, the opinions account, not the New York Times account, but the opinions account started tweeting Senator Collins' phone number, some of the other senators' phone numbers, if you want to stop the tax bill, call this number. And there was this big uproar over it. And I was like, okay, I I get the uproar to an extent because I get this is very unusual for the New York Times, but the New York Times editorial board offering people phone numbers to contact their senators to stop this tax bill is the most logical, honest conclusion of their editorials. <laughs> you know, it gives you all this information about how bad the tax bill is and how awful it is and what, what it's going to do to the country. And you're a reader and you're and you're reading this editorial and you're thinking, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe how bad this is. I can't, this is so scary. What do I do about it? So why can't the paper then say, if you agree with this editorial, if you found this persuasive, here's a number you can call to do something about it. It didn't seem to me the biggest deal. And yet it was greeted as, oh my God, I can't believe they did this. So to me, us giving people the information they need to actually affect change is the logical conclusion of us being completely honest about where we stand and what we believe, even as we back up those beliefs with facts and evidence. 
I think a lot of this comes from a sort of holdover of the idea of objectivity. I used to work at the Washington Post, and, and for years, the, the head editor of the Washington Post wouldn't vote, right? He just didn't vote. Right. Like, even voting, like, as a personal individual was too far a line. And I don't think it was because you weren't supposed to have your own political opinions. Obviously, he did. But it was because you weren't supposed to give the audience reasons not to trust you. But I struggle with this because I've certainly internalized a lot of these from, I've been in journalism, you know, for a dozen years and believe in a lot of this stuff, you know, and I've sort of mounted my own insurgencies against the parts I didn't like, like not being able to say what it is you found in your reporting. But on the other hand, you know, when starting Vox, I've created a lot of these same walls. Well, I think you guys do a very good job with this. I mean, I, I know that you, you know, you haven't sort of breached into, <laughs> into activism, right? You don't, you don't call on people to do things. But, you know, it's very obvious where you stand from your pieces, but your pieces are all very well argued and filled with evidence and facts, right? Because it, it's Vox. That's what you guys do. But like, for example, when I, when I need to know about a major piece of legislation or even a, a political fight over a major piece of legislation, I will go to Vox as opposed to the New York Times or Politico or the Washington Post because those stories are all about sort of the political narrative of the moment and the fighting and the, the characters and the personalities involved, which I read those too because <laughs> I want to know that and I think it's valuable information. But if I want to know what the arguments are on one side versus the arguments on the other side, I'll go to Vox because you guys make sure that you write these pieces that are all laden with facts and argument. And so, I mean, you guys aren't worried when you write those pieces that people are going to come away thinking that you are against the tax bill because it's fairly obvious that you are. So I, I do think that that kind of that's a, that's sort of another step away from the we must be objective at all costs both sides style of journalism. Yeah, that that's the step I'm I feel very comfortable taking. And in some ways, I think the other kind is a sort of a lie. I always felt very very uncomfortable not being able to say, "Hey, look, I looked into this tax bill. It's like a lot of fraud." <laughs> like to right. not tell the audience that feels like misserving them. But the place where some of that is that I have traditionally like been more on board is the idea that trying to not get yourself like into a team mentality because like mm. down the line that can hurt you and right. it can affect how you view things. Like I'm a very big consumer of all this political psychology about how when you think of yourself as one thing, you begin to really trust that side. And that's where I think some of that stuff has been, has been interesting and will be, you know, is something that I think all of us who now do this kind of journalism that is more upfront in our opinions have to police really seriously in ourselves because like mm -hmm. the one good thing, no, I mean, there are many good things, but one of the good things about some of these more traditional approaches is that they force you to call people on the other side. They force you to like create institutional checks against what just feels good to you. And right. here you can throw out a lot of the things that are bad about that, but you can also throw out too many of the things that are good about it. And yeah. like that's, well, look, I, I think, mean, the, the, the struggle we're always engaged in here. I think the lesson that we learned uh, in 2016 is you know, we on Keeping It 1600, our pod before Pod Save America, we were almost always complimentary towards the Clinton campaign. And despite the fact that, you know, Dan and I and, and Tommy and John all had reservations about how they were running the campaign or what they were saying all the time, we kept those relatively quiet because there was this belief that like, all right, well, we're all on the same team here and 
we got to get her across the finish line because a Donald Trump presidency would be fucking disastrous. And so what good does it do to have all these fights in public right now if we need her to win? And I don't have that mentality anymore because I think, not that I think like that if we argued more about Hillary Clinton over the course of 2016, that somehow that would have helped her win. But I also think that, you know, now before the next race starts, um, is is a time to be honest, not just about the other side, but our beliefs about our own side. And you might disagree with my view on Doug Jones or Ralph Northam or whoever it may be, but I want to. I want people to know that I'm trying to be honest about this. I'm trying to approach it by looking at all available facts and evidence. And if at the end of the day you don't agree with me, you don't agree with me. But this is where I'm coming from, and I think it helps to be and you sort of build trust and maintain trust by being as honest as you can with people. So I know you got to run in a minute. I want to be respectful of your time. So here's the question we used to end the podcast. What are three books you've read that have changed you, that have influenced you, that you would recommend to the audience? Oh, boy. I should have prepared for this, man. I don't read books anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I will say that everyone should read What Happened. I know that you've talked about this. I, I was surprised by this book. This was like— By Hillary Clinton. Yes, by Hillary Clinton, because you think a politician's book usually is pretty boring and pretty uh, safe. And then you think that Hillary Clinton is unusually safe and cautious. And she wasn't in that book. It's worth reading to, it's hard to read because it's, if you're a liberal, it's like sort of depressing. But um, I think there's some interesting things in that book, particularly what you picked out, which is I knew you would pick that out of the book as soon as I read it, which is why I didn't ask her about it, about the universal basic income and how she almost proposed that. Yeah, that was as soon as I saw that in the book, I'm like, why is everybody talking about her election analysis? (laughs) But it was like two pages of the book, three pages of the book, and she just sort of breezes by it. Like, by the way, I was almost like uh, this incredible progressive (laughs) it's so funny though when she talks about why she didn't do it because like she gets caught up by just like the most hillary things they've come up with this incredibly weird way of explaining it they want to say alaska for america which Mm -hmm. because alaska has this you know oil fund um distribution yeah and nobody understands what's going on in alaska so like well i guess nobody's gonna get this and they jump it (laughs) instead of like they have this huge policy and they can't think of a way to explain it except to like reduce it to the smallest thing in the most like tight locality like they like in the country. It's it is both you see a lot of the promise that the campaign could have had in that and you see exactly what held it back. It's crazy. Other two books, The News a User's Manual by Elaine Dup- I forget how to say his name. Elaine de Baton. It's a, the French That sounds philosopher. right. Yeah, I've read that book. That's a very interesting book. It's fascinating about the psychology of the news, what it does to people, how it's changed. It's uh, it's very, very good. And then All the Truth is Out, Matt Bibes' book. It's uh, another outstanding book about the way coverage of politicians has changed over the course of the years, um, using the Gary Hart presidential campaign as an example and um, and what that has done to our politics. John Favreau, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ezra. This was fun. Thank you to John Favreau for being here, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, to our engineer, Peter Leonard, and to Bert Pinkerton for making this interview happen, and to all of you for tuning into it. Ezra Klein will be back next week. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything, and now everything is data. 
which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS Viya, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash V-I-Y-A. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on Call mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.